God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapters 44 and 45. Jeremiah 44 and 45. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt, at Migdol, at Tophanes, at Memphis, and in the land of Pathros. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger and all that they went to make, in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and a desolation as at this day. And now... Thus says Yahweh, God of hosts, the God of Israel, Why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and women, infant and child, from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? Have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil, and the evil of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not humbled themselves, even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off all Judah. I will take the remnant of Judah who you have set, who, who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live, and they shall all be consumed. In the land of Egypt they shall fall. By sword and by famine they shall be consumed. From the least to the greatest they shall die by the sword and by famine, and they shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return to dwell there, for they shall not return except some fugitives. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods and all the women who stood by A great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of Yahweh, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed. Make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her, as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings, and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we have left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, 
Was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? Then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who had given him this answer, as for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land, did not Yahweh remember them? Did it not come into his mind? Yahweh could, not, could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. It is because you made offerings and because you sinned against Yahweh and did not obey the voice of Yahweh or walk in His law and in all, all His statutes and in His testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as at this day. Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you of Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, You and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and to pour out our drink offerings to her. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear what Yah- the word of Yahweh, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says Yahweh, that my name shall no longer be invoked by the mouths of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as, Yahweh, as the Lord Yahweh lives, behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. And those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. And all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. This shall be the sign to you, declares Yahweh, that I will punish you in this place in order that you may know my words will surely stand against you for harm. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and sought his life. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Barak the son of Neriah when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, to you, O Barak. You said, Woe is me, for Yahweh has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with groaning and I find no rest. Thus you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, what I have built I am breaking down, and what I have planted I am plucking up. That is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares Yahweh. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us for our seeking great things for ourselves. 
grant now the humility and a fear of your word so that we will go forward sanctified, pursuing your glory instead of our comfort. Bless the preaching of your word towards that we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We've come now in chapter 44 to the last words of Jeremiah to the Judean remnant. To what is, as far as recorded words, the last sermon of Jeremiah. In chapters 46 through 51 that follow it, we have what's known as the oracle against the nations. And these all date from an earlier time. In fact, they date from the same time as chapter 45, which was a word that came to Jeremiah for Barak in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. You look at chapter uh, uh, 46 and verses 1 and 2, and you'll see the time frame there is the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. If you back up in chapter 25 and verse 13, Yahweh says, I will bring upon that land, which is Babylon, all the words that I've uttered against it. Everything written in this book, this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. So there is a book, there's a collection of prophecies put together of Jeremiah speaking against the nations. That collection is in chapters 46 through 51, and all of those date back to the reign of Jehoiakim. So what we have here comes far after that, after the the nation's been destroyed after uh, Babylon has left a governor in place that's been murdered and the people have journeyed now towards Egypt in rebellion against God. Beyond chapters 46 and 51 through 51, you only have chapter 52, which functions as a kind of postscript to what's happened after the destruction. Uh, that, well, it concerns the destruction of Jerusalem and what happens thereafter. So here Jeremiah is. He's preaching in a new location, and it seems as though he's just pulling out all his old sermons. You read this, and it sounds like he's just recycling old material. He's one of those kind of preachers. He found a place to retire, and he's just marking out Jerusalem, 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 and inserting Egypt, Egypt. Like that, you, you think this is just one of those lazy, retired preachers whenever you read this. But then you realize he's still preaching to the same church. He's in a different location, but he's still preaching to the same church that's committing all the same sins. <laughs> the, the reason there's not a new sermon is because there's, it's the same people and it's the same sins. Jeremiah ends where he began, calling the people to repentance, warning them of God's judgment, rebuking their idolatry. Same, same ending as, with, as is beginning. And further, Jeremiah ends where it all began. Jeremiah ends where it all began. The people of God were formed as a distinct people and nation as God redeemed them out of Egypt. And now, they are rejected in Egypt. This time, instead of leaving Egypt blessed... They are brought to Egypt to be cursed. In Egypt, the people of God began being delivered by judgment. 
And now, insofar as this remnant's concerned, they return to the land to be destroyed by judgment. They've returned back to the beginning for the end. Previously, in the other sermons that we have Jeremiah declaring to the people of God throughout this book, excepting these recent chapters, previously his words were addressed to Judah as a whole. But now, there's a specific subset of Judah that he's preaching to. So it is a bit of a different crowd in this sense. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt. And then you have these places listed, which is basically him saying, all the Jews, all the Judeans, who lived in upper and lower Egypt. So this doesn't concern those who were exiled in Babylon, taken away captive. This concerns those who have who've fled to Egypt. And as we've already seen, that the mention of Egypt is charged with significance. They fled here in fear and in unbelief and in disobedience seeking refuge. Now, recall the, the patriarchs, uh, Jacob specifically and the 12, his 12 sons. Remember how they went into Egypt seeking refuge as well and they found it. And they went in there with a promise of God. Yes, that refuge would turn into bondage, but following that bondage, there would be redemption. God's word was promising all of this for them. Here they go into Egypt contrary to God's word, seeking refuge apart from Him, and thus they are promised destruction. God will leave them alone. Instead of redemption, they will taste of His wrath. Now the prophets function as God's prosecuting attorneys. They bring God's case of covenant breaking before the people and God's charges and verdicts against them, calling for them to repent. Jeremiah opens calling for Jerusalem to witness against herself in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, saying, The word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says Yahweh, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to Yahweh, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares Yahweh. Hear the word of Yahweh, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, your fathers, they didn't say, where is Yahweh who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in the land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? The same accusations, the same kind of charges, you get the same kind of sense of this courtroom being laid before them, these charges coming against them, and it's the same accusations being brought against this people, but realize this isn't double jeopardy. This is more severe now. Because prior, the accusation was, you've sinned against God's grace. Now, they're not only sinning against God's grace, they're sinning against God's judgment. They saw His great grace in redeeming them out of Egypt. And now they've seen His judgment in leveling Jerusalem. They're sinning in the face of not only God's grace, which is a great sin, but they're sinning 
in the face of His judgment, which is great folly. The reason for their destruction is their continuing in sin. Judgment was poured out. You remember how He told them earlier, you don't need to go to the land of Egypt because if you stay here, I'm with you. His judgment has been poured out, but they continue in their rebellion. So this isn't double jeopardy. This is a fresh accusation coming against them. The reason for their destruction is that they've committed great evil, provoking Yahweh again to anger by their idolatries. And they do this, verse 4, despite the words of the prophets. God has not only persistently, He not only persistently tells them, He persistently tells them that He persistently tells them. Grounds for judgment presented in Jeremiah 17, 13, Jeremiah 7, 13 through 14 are as follows. One, because you have done all these things, declares Yahweh. And two, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And three, when I called, you did not answer. Over 40 years, Jeremiah declares the word of God again and again, persistently. Much earlier, Jeremiah said to them, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, to this day, which was the fourth year of Jehoiakim, at that point, the word of Yahweh has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although Yahweh persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. And likewise, Jeremiah 29, 13 Jeremiah 29, 19, 32, 33, 35, 17, they all mention Yahweh's persistent warnings. But they're just as persistent in not listening as Yahweh is persistent in speaking, 44, verse 5. And so for this reason, His wrath and His anger are poured out on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, 44, verse 6. The sins for which Judah was judged The sins for which this remnant was judged. The sins for which all humanity will be judged can be summed up in this simple way. It's a failure to listen to the word of Yahweh. It's a failure to hear His general revelation, the truth of which goes out to all men and they suppress And then further, on top of that, many will be damned because they heard His word of special revelation and further rejected it. Having so built up this case now by historical precedent, God then asks, why? 44 verse 7. Why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, infant and child from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? Verse 8, why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to live so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? Not toying with the witness, but exposing the wickedness of their hearts. God asks, verse 9, have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah? The evil of their wives, your own evil, and the evil of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. To this day, 44 verse 10, they've not humbled themselves, 
nor they feared Yahweh. Humility would bow before the one who is their creator, their redeemer, and their Lord. Idolatry, you see, is arrogance. Idolatry is arrogance. Can you sense the tones of of the accusation of arrogance in Paul's description of idolatry in Romans chapter 1? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Idolatry isn't just arrogance, it's brazen arrogance. It's foolish arrogance. It's also irreverence. They have not humbled themselves, nor have they feared, verse 10. It's a failure to fear. Idolatry is irreverence toward the God who redeemed them out of Egypt with wonders of judgment and turning the Nile to blood and causing the land to be covered with frogs, gnats, flies, and locusts. It's irreverence toward the one who spoke to them out of the fire from the mountain, before which they trembled in terror. It's irreverence towards the one who has just demonstrated his lordship over them by leveling Jerusalem. Our failure to listen to God and worship Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and Him alone is an expression of idolatrous arrogance and irreverence. And the judgment that falls on such sin Verses 11 through 14 is that God sets His face against them for harm to cut them off. They'll be consumed by His judgment, consumed by the sword, by famine. They'll become a curse. God will so punish them that among this remnant, there will not be a remnant. There will be a few fugitives. There will be so few escape as to emphasize the completeness of the destruction that Yahweh brings on them. 44 verse 14. And following the word of Yahweh being declared to this people, we again see the people in striking unity. You remember in chapter 42, there was this amazing demonstration of unity. A demonstration of unity that you don't see anywhere else among all the people. But there was this demonstration of unity in chapter 42, and they said, whatever Yahweh says, we will do, be it good or bad, whatever He says, we will do. And here we have the same kind of unity. All the men, verse 15 of chapter 44. All the the women, all the people. But whereas previously, their unity was demonstrated by a false, humble petition, 
Whatever Yahweh says we'll do. Here, it's demonstrated by, by a honest, arrogant answer. In chapter 42, the people in unity falsely seek the word. Here, they honestly reject it. And in this, do you see the people's heart? Their heart hasn't changed. It's the same heart acting in both ways. Their arrogance is plain in this. They take seriously God's rhetorical questions that He's put to them on the witness bench. Why do you commit this great evil? Why do you provoke me to anger? Have you forgotten? They answer those questions. They refuse to listen to the Word. And instead, they say, we will keep our vows to the Queen of Heaven, 44, 16 through 17. A number of goddesses could be referred to by this title, the Queen of Heaven. You had the Canaanite Asherah, uh, the Mesopotamian Ashtoreth, the Babylonian Ishtar. And these are all, uh, they correspond to the more familiar to us anyway, the Greek Aphrodite or the, the Roman Venus. They all deal with Venus. And so they're worshiping this goddess now, again. And, and it's peculiar, there, there was discovered, um, not that far back, a number of papyri on the island of Elephantine, which is it's an island within the Nile. And it, there was a, a group of Jews lived there on this island, and these documents date to the 5th century, not far removed from the events we're looking at. And these, the Jews that lived there were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And there was the syncretism. For instance, uh, there's, there's another god, goddess, who's linked to all these other kind of fertility goddesses named Anat. It's a, she's a mashup of Canaanite and Egyptian goddesses. And there's a record of, in these papyri of them worshipping Anat Yahu. And the idea is most likely that this is some kind of uh, Anat and Yahoo being regarded as a couple, Yahweh. But what's most striking as we read this in, in its context is that whereas previously they vowed to obey God, no matter what He says, be it good or bad, now they're vowing to keep their oath to the Queen of Heaven. They're, they're so quick, though, to break their oath to Yahweh, and so resolute to keep their oath to the Queen of Heaven. They said, we'll obey Yahweh's word, whether it be good or bad, and they said they'll do so for this reason, that it might be well with us, 42, 2 through 6. And now they rail against, against Yahweh's word, saying, we'll keep our vows to the Queen of Heaven, that we might be blessed. What they're after, in both instances, though they're using biblical language, we'll, we'll obey Yahweh no matter what He says that it might be well with us. That's biblical languages and their promises attached, but what's exposed in the way they're using it now, especially as they're speaking of the Queen of Heaven and while they worship her, what's exposed is the same heart that was behind their hypocrisy in chapter 42 is now being exposed with their honesty in chapter 44. 
The same heart is, they really don't care about God. They just care about themselves, their own comfort, their own ease. The reason they say they're going to keep their vows to the Queen of Heaven is because when they worshipped her, they had plenty. They prospered. They saw no disaster. Their reading of history was that the kingdom was really well off. And then Josiah comes along and he purges the land of idols. And it's after that that we started to see all this destruction. It was after that that Babylon began coming against us. This is what is known as the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. After this, therefore because of this. If your child ever tries to use this fallacy, it might be in this way. After I brushed my teeth, I got a toothache. Therefore, brushing my teeth causes toothaches. Ergo, I shouldn't brush my teeth. It's bad for my teeth. It causes toothaches. You see, after this, therefore, because of this. You see the logical fallacy. In reality, it was Jeremiah's reforms that staved off destruction for quite some time. So note this. We read history through the lens of religion. We read history through the lens of religion. You don't read history unbiased. You don't read creation unbiased. You don't read history. You don't read science. You don't read anything unbiased. You read it through the lens of your religion. And creation, history, science, these are all fields of study that have huge gaps in information. And the way you fill in those gaps is with your religious presuppositions. And the way you interpret all that raw data, all those facts, is with your religious presuppositions. You see, I think Jeremiah and this remnant would largely agree on the raw historical facts. Whenever you presented the economy of Jerusalem prior to Josiah and the economy thereafter, I don't think Jeremiah would argue that, hey, we were better off economy-wise before Josiah than we were afterwards. No one would argue the raw historical data. It's the religious interpretation that differs so wildly. The search for the historical Jesus, historical critical reconstructions of, of the Scripture saying, well, this is probably how it really happened. You realize all these things... They're not based upon the raw data that brings them to those kind of conclusions. Those are interpretations that are determined by their religious bias which they bring to the Scriptures. Saints, we don't launch out into this world as judges with our own autonomous reason determining this is fact and that's not. We are children being taught by our Father how to think, how to read His world, and how to read His Word by His Word and His Spirit. He teaches us by His Word. Spirit opens our eyes to understand He teaches us by His Word both how to read this world and how to read the Word. The Word teaches you how to read the Word and the world. So take your Father's hand and learn from Him because this is our Father's world. The Scriptures are His self-authenticating, supremely authoritative Word disclosing the story He's the author of in which we find ourselves as characters. Everyone else is, is so foolish as to speak as a character 
about what the author's doing. Listen to the author about what he's doing. Let him interpret the characters and the story for you. Now, back to this people's pursuit of comfort. They choose their God arbitrarily based upon, you see, what they reason will be best for them. They're going to speak in a certain kind of hypocritical way if they think they can leverage God to get what they want. And when that doesn't work, they go to the queen of heaven. If your worship of God is due to pleasant circumstances, that's the reason it's, it's not a worship of God, it's really a worship of stuff, yourself. If your worship of God is due to pleasant circumstances, realize God will likely provide unpleasant circumstances to expose your false worship. You're not really worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. They first began by worshiping God falsely. And when that didn't work, they began worshiping false gods. Such as the road to idolatry. But their worship really was idolatrous from its inception. They chose a God for their own comfort rather than bow before the God who chose them for His glory. They want to choose a God for their own comfort rather than bow before the God who chose them for His own glory. Recognize this. Redemption is found in the God who chooses. Destruction is found in man choosing his own God. Redemption is found in the God who chooses. Destruction is found in man choosing his own God. You are not autonomous. Submit. Bow. Hear the word of God. To cap off their response, the women in particular have a word for Jeremiah in verse 19. They're, they're trying to justify their actions as well. You see, they're, they're trying to give an answer to all of, Jer- all of God's questions that He put before them that they should have said, case closed, we're guilty. They're giving answers for And so they speak up as well, hey, what we did, the worship that we led out in, they led out in the worship of the Queen of Heaven. We did it with our husband's approval. And what's bizarre about this is that this is an ethical appeal to their liberty to, to do this Based upon God's word. Because in Numbers chapter 30, God gave instructions. If a wife makes a vow, and her husband then hears of it, and he says, nuh-uh, the vow's canceled. She doesn't have to carry through with it. It's done with. They're appealing to the morality and the ethics that God has laid down in His law as a reason to justify the immorality that they're practicing. This is the conundrum that unbelievers always find themselves in, again and again. Every pagan, every atheist, every idolater faces the nagging problem of inconsistency. Because they're making up a fairy tale, but they have to live in the real world. They've made up their little God, but the fact is, they live before the true God of heaven. They've made up their false history, but the thing is, the true history is still back there and all of its implications are bearing on them right now. However, they try to deny them by their false histories. They've constructed their little worldview, but the thing is, that's not the colors of the real world. 
and you're going to go bump when you keep trying to insist as though red were green. They still have to live in God's world. This is the problem that postmodernists slam into whenever they say there are no absolutes. <laughs> to which you ask, are you absolutely certain? Jeremiah now tries to call them back to reality, rebuking their folly in verses 20 through 23. The idolatrous wicked acts that Yahweh previously asked if they'd forgotten, Jeremiah now asked them, if do you think God forgot them? The reason why they've been judged so that their land's a waste and a curse is because God remembered the sins He's asking you if you forgot. The reason the disaster came upon them was because they sinned against Yahweh, not obeying His voice, not walking in His law. And you, you notice, I think it's plain here in, in Jeremiah's response through 20 through 23. It's not as though Jeremiah thinks he has to win this argument. He just presents, here's the facts, here's how it happened. Because he realizes this is not an argument between him and them. It's not an argument between Jeremiah and the people of God, between Judah. It's an argument between Yahweh and the people of his people, his own people. And what this chapter builds up to then with verses 24 through 30, you see this. Indeed, we could say, what, what Jeremiah... We, I've argued before that I believe it's as some scholars have said that Jeremiah presents before us a theology of the Word of God as no other book. Again and again, just distinct from all the prophets, even though it is the prophet's phrase, thus says Yahweh, that kind of phrase and those kind of uh, formulas are used in Jeremiah like nowhere else, and it builds to this head to where you see a contest between Yahweh's words and their words. What we have here, what this is built up to, is a contest of words. Yahweh says, essentially is, you've declared your vows, keep them. And I will keep mine. And let's see whose word stands. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you of Judah, who are in the land of Egypt. Verse 25. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her, then confirm, confirm your vows and perform your vows. hope you recognize this is the same kind of judgment that's spoken of in Romans chapter 1 where God gives them over to their own ways. This is the scariest kind of judgment that can fall on man before judgment. It's a judgment before judgment that means greater judgment. You want to keep your vows? Keep them. That's God's judgment. And further, you've made these vows to sacrifice to the queen of heaven. I vow that you shall no longer vow by my name. And the significance of this is that it means they're no longer his people. He's cut them off. 
Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear. The name by which you swear reveals who your God is. Who you believe the judge is. Who you believe you live before. And speaking of the redemption that's to come to the people of God after the destruction falls on Jerusalem, Yahweh said, Thus says Yahweh concerning all my evil neighbors, that would be all those, who, all those nations that lived around Jerusalem, Judah, Thus says Yahweh concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I've given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up, the nations, from their land. And I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I've plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as Yahweh lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, if they will learn to swear as Yahweh lives, as my people do, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares Yahweh. What you're seeing here that this remnant isn't that remnant. Again and again, the promises of that remnant that God will pluck up from that land and restore to their place are concerning the exiles in Babylon. Now it's being made clear clear that this remnant is not that remnant. They are not those who will teach the nations to swear by the name of Yahweh there are those still being taught to swear by the names of false gods. And thus they will be destroyed, consumed by sword and famine, 44, 27 through 28. And by this it's being made plain whose word will stand, whose will not. But as a sign to them whose word will stand, so that he will punish them. He says, there's this sign. Pharaoh-Hophra will be given into the hands of his enemies as Zedekiah was. 44 and verse 30. Now read carefully. Because you read this at first and you think it means that Pharaoh-Hophra will be given into Zedekiah's hands in the same way that Zedekiah was given into. Let me say that again. You read it first and you think Pharaoh-Hophra will be given into Nebuchadnezzar's hands the same way that Zedekiah was given into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. That's not what it says. It says that Pharaoh Hophra will be given into the hands of his enemies in the same way that Zedekiah was given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. We've already seen promises that Babylon will come against Egypt, but it doesn't come in Pharaoh Hophra's days. What happens is Pharaoh Hophra sends one of his generals, Amasis, to deal with a rebellion. Problem is, those rebels declare Amasis king. So Amasis then comes with his army, and now there's a civil war in Egypt, and it There's a period where they're both reigning over Egypt, but eventually Amasis becomes Pharaoh, and it's that Pharaoh that will come under Babylon as a vassal of sorts. It's under him that destruction will come to Egypt. Now, in between 
this last recorded prophecy and the oracles against the nations, you have this little word given to Barak during the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. Is this chapter just a floater? How did it get here? Does it have no anchor in the book of Jeremiah? Just thrown in there. And the last word of this little word, I think, makes it plain that that's not the case. This word comes to Barak during the fourth year of Jehoiakim, and that links it to chapters 24, 25, and 36. All of those chapters, there's words They're all concerning that exact time frame. Chapter 24, Jeremiah received a word about good figs and bad figs. The good figs that God rejects, the the good figs that God will bless, and the good figs are those Judeans who are exiled in Babylon, and the bad figs are those who are left in the land. That's exactly what's playing out right here in chapter 44. Chapter 25. Jeremiah there speaks of the 70 years of captivity. That's where he speaks concerning recording uh, the book of judgment against the nations, the oracles against the nations. Um, Then you have chapter 46, which links those oracles against the nations, verses 1 and 2, to chapter 25. So the, the other reference, and the most important one, in regards to what's happening here, to the fourth year of Jehoiakim, is in chapter 36. Which is where Jeremiah received instruction to put together 23 years worth of material into a book. And declare it at the temple to the people of God. And Barak acted as his secretary. And having written it all down, because Jeremiah couldn't go to the temple and declare it, that task fell to Barak. And having done so, you remember how that scroll came to King Jehoiakim and he would cut off parts of it at a time and throw it into the fire and he asked, where are Jeremiah? Where's Barak? So can you see why it would be in the fourth year of Jehoiakim that Barak would cry out, woe is me. For Yahweh has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning. Jeremiah's calling was a hard one, and it couldn't have been any easier to be a secretary. In some ways, you would imagine it was harder. Jeremiah is directly receiving revelation from God. Barak is just acting as a secretary. In some ways, you imagine he's more vulnerable than Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the prophet, and so there's a little apprehension, perhaps, to deal with Jeremiah at times. Not so with Barak. After So long a time of marinating in Jeremiah, perhaps some of you have thought to yourself a time or two, woe is me. And if you haven't, perhaps it's because you haven't fully felt the gravity of God's word of judgment, as Barak could not but have. Because Barak not only recorded these words, he witnessed them. So to Barak's lament, God provides a gracious rebuke. He sums up what he's doing. And then with a piercing question, he follows with a word of promise. 
As Yahweh said in chapter 18, He's the potter. His people are the clay. Barak, I'm destroying what I built. And I'm plucking up what I planted. Whatever kind of relationship you think you have in concerning the people of God and what's happening right now, it is not as extensive or as intensive as my relationship to these people. It's mine. So in light of this, he asked, do you seek great things for yourself? There's a bit of the same heart you see in Barak as is present in the people. We'll do whatever God says that it may go well with us. We'll worship the queen of heaven. Because when we worshiped her, we prospered. Baruch, Barak, do you seek great things for yourself? Yahweh is breaking what he's built. He's plucking up what he's planted. And the real reason that Barak is woebegone is because he seeks great things for himself. It's not that things are bad out there. It's that things aren't so good for me right now. He was a scribe. He's an educated man. His father, we're told, was Messiah. And it very likely is the same Messiah who served as a, a governor, as a, a kind of official during the reign of Josiah. His brother, Sarah, served in Zedekiah's court. We'll see that when we come to chapter 52. So Barak likely had ambitions. And now he's recognizing he took a dead-end job with Jeremiah. Like the Judeans, he's seeking comfort. But in conflict with his seeking his own comfort, there's also this. Ultimately, the reason Barak is lamenting is because, yeah, there's sin in his life. But the reason he's lamenting is because there's also righteousness. You see, his soul's in conflict, as we've seen with Jeremiah so often throughout this journey in Jeremiah. There's this conflict between the flesh which he's crucifying and this resolve ultimately to bow before God. Don't you see yourself in Barak right here? The prayer is, I can see myself in Judah's sin. But oh God, I hope there is this wrestling and this struggle like I see in Barak right here. I still struggle with all that sin, seeking my own, that idolatrous, irreverent arrogance. But Father, I do want to submit, I do want to hear, I do want to walk in your ways, because I know it will be well with me. Despite everything else that is happening, it will be well with me if I'm there. So God commands, essentially, Barak not to seek good things for himself because he's going to destroy all flesh, but 
He promises, I've given you your life as a prize of war wherever you go. See why this chapter's here now? Egypt is part of wherever. Chapter 43, verses 6 through 7, we're told of everyone that went down into Egypt, and with that remnant brought with them were Jeremiah and Barak. So we know there are at least two in Egypt who fear Yahweh, tremble at His word. Learn these three lessons from this word to Barak. First, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trust the provision of your Lord. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Step back And take in the cosmic scope of what Yahweh is doing. He is plucking. And He is planting. And it's all His to do with as He wishes. Christ came. He lived to be the righteousness of the saints. He died for their sins. He rose conquering all their foes. And all things are being Put under His feet. And He will judge this world one day in full. And thereafter make all things new. Seek His glory. And not your own. Two. Realize this. Being caught up in the midst of a judged people. Does not necessarily communicate God's disfavor with you personally. Being caught up in the midst of a judged people does not communicate God's disfavor with you personally, necessarily. The way you know how you stand with God is not by reading this world, but by reading His Word. To this remnant. In their rebellion, God says, you go into Egypt... You will be judged. And to Barak. In his lament. That communicates as much sin. As it does righteousness. To Barak the word of God comes and says. Wherever. Wherever. I've given you your life. Third. Recognize this. God's word of grace. Stands. Just as sure and strong as his word of judgment. His word of grace stands just as sure and strong as his word of judgment. Whose word will stand? Yahweh's word will stand both in judgment and salvation. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Yahweh is our God in Christ. His name is is upon us. In baptism, 
we are baptized, but we're baptized taking His name in a covenant vow unto Him. We swear by His name. In Christ we will forever stand. In Christ we've been given by the Father life eternal. All will be destroyed. All. All will be destroyed. In Christ. He's given you life. Wherever. You can't get out of it. You can't escape it. Wherever in Christ. His word to you is a word of grace. And life. All will be destroyed. All's being put under his feet. But He is our Redeemer and Lord. And so let us not seek our own. Let us seek His glory, knowing He will make all things new. That in Christ, we have eternal life and nothing can separate us from His love. Let's pray. Holy Father, our faith, so weak and frail, we lament, we believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Sanctify us, your people, by your truth. Your word is truth. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, but the gift of hearing is yours to give, and so open our ears. We plead this in the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ, for he is worthy. Father, grant us grace to step back and see the scope of what you're doing in judgment and salvation and not seek our own, but seek yours, knowing that all this is, is grass, but your word will stand forever and we have by your grace been united to your living word, Jesus Christ, and in him we have life and life eternal. So hold us fast, Father. Give us humble hearts, reverent hearts to hear and obey. May we not contest your words. May we bow before them ourselves and commend them to others. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.